The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 3, The Classical World, Episode 76, A Summary of the Classical World, Part 1. covered a great deal of the world's events during our journey together through the classical period of world history. And now we are going to summarise the period which we have learned more about. This follows on somewhat from our summary of the ancient period of world history and the end of the volume 2 summary which we presented in episode 37 in that volume. We left the ancient period during the first centuries of the first millennium BCE when the Assyrian Empire were mastering the use of iron, something that was first mastered by the Hittites. The Hittites were likely to have been forced to use iron due to a lack of tin imports and with trade networks disrupted. It may have also been initially the case for the Assyrians but this time ironmongery would become a preferred form of metallurgy to bronze and its fashion would start its journey to becoming a global trend. We also saw the emergence of religious scriptures as this would be the millennium where many religious and philosophical ideas would develop, many of which are still taken very seriously in the modern world. The lands of Israel would begin to have a significant religious meaning within the evolution of Abrahamic religion, which is still of paramount importance to many people to this very day. From now we can see the land of Israel, and particularly the city of Jerusalem, become the first land and city to become politically significant due to their sacred nature carrying so much weight among human population. We are also on the cusp of significant advances in philosophy which can be compared to religion but without the spirituality and both the advancement of philosophy and religion would have a profound influence on art and ritual whether it be through the forum of poetry or theatre and other forms of entertainment which may even involve ritual sacrifice or even through the development of portable and parietal art, which was a human tradition that dated back into prehistory, to a culture of giant statue building, demonstrating the wonder of human ability. 700 BCE Assyria conquered Israel towards the end of the 8th century BCE, bringing their iron weapons with them. The city of Jerusalem was certainly important and recognisable by this period of history, as recorded by both the Jews who lived there and the Assyrians who conquered them. Jerusalem was the site of a great Jewish temple that had been built by King Solomon, the son of David, who were both significant in the establishment of Israel 
as a significant regional state. For the Assyrians, the conquest of Israel was just a small part of the expansion of their power, which was in a large part down to their 8th century ruler, Tiglath-Pileser III. Great expansion into the lands of the Uratu in the north and into the lands of Mesopotamia to the southeast could be added to the Assyrian list of conquests, as it was becoming the largest empire that the world had ever seen. But we will soon discover that it would not hold this claim for long in the great scheme of world history. We will find that the empires of Persia, Europe and China would eclipse the Assyrians in terms of land area. The Assyrians would continue their success after the lifetime of Tiglath-Pileser III by conquering Egypt, albeit quite briefly. Egypt, by this time, had gone from a mighty ancient power in its own right to a territory sought after by its powerful neighbours due to its wealth, but with military inferiority to the empires to its north. Egypt would always have an underlying self-identity which it fought to preserve, but it was never able to escape its defensive mindset that was not a feature of its politics during the 2nd millennium BCE. The Assyrian sacking of Thebes in the lands of the Upper Nile marked the apogee of Assyrian expansion. The Late Bronze Age collapse occurred in around 1200 BCE, 500 years earlier, and it is likely that the weakening of many kingdoms and empires of the Near East dramatically affected the trade of tin, which was essential for bronze production. The substitution of iron gave the world a replacement that was harder to work with, but with higher quality results. Ironmongery had spread into the Balkan and Italian peninsulas by 700 BCE, possibly aided by the migrations of Indo-European speakers, but certainly not exclusively to them. We also see iron working in the proto-Celtic Hallstatt culture of Central Europe by the middle of the first millennium BCE. Iron working would emerge in China in around the 7th or 6th century BCE, so this was very likely an independent emergence, which is very interesting. If we travel to the lands of the modern country of Nigeria in West Africa, we have firm evidence of iron working there by the middle of the first millennium BCE too, so yet another autonomous case on the face of it. The Nigerian cultures would have included the Nok culture and many Bantu-speaking people who would look to migrate towards the south of the African continent as the centuries passed after this time. Historians suspect that ironworking dates back many hundreds of years earlier in this part of the world though, much more in line with the Hittites when they started mastering ironworking during the 2nd millennium BCE. While Assyria was at its peak as the dominant culture of the Near East, there were other cultures developing into imperial strength entities in other lands in the Mediterranean and the Near East too which is significant because nothing had been seen on this scale for almost 500 years 
since the late Bronze Age collapse. The city of Carthage in the modern North African country of Tunisia was controlling many of the naval trade routes of the Mediterranean. The remnants of Mycenaean Greece was now witnessing the rise of cities who were beginning to gain influence over their surrounding agricultural villages. And some of the Greek cultures that had barely survived from the Mycenaean age through spoken language, ceramic production and mythological stories would create a cultural bond between these rival Greek city-states. The foundation of classical Greek culture dates back to this period, but we're not entirely sure about the accuracy of Greek claims about its own history. We know that the long-lasting tradition of the Olympic Games in Greece is accurately dated to 776 BCE, but there are some doubts about this due to a lack of writing in Greece at this precise time. We also see recordings of Greek mythologies and poetry dated to this period from the pens of Homer and Hesiod, whose personal existence is questioned by some. The motivation to fabricate the glory of the Olympic Games tradition and Greek mythology may have been to unite the Greek city-states against non-Greek cultures who would inevitably take an interest in their wealth, which would have been gathered by the same Mediterranean trade opportunities being exploited by the Carthaginians. We know all too well that all of these Mediterranean lands would eventually be under the influence of the Romans. And it's interesting to note that the mythology of the emergence of the city of Rome also dates to the 8th century BCE with the story of the twin brothers of Romulus and Remus. Archaeological evidence suggests that there was a settlement at Rome before this story, however, but it is more likely to have been under Etruscan or Latin influence originally, which wouldn't have suited the Romans looking to promote their culture as superior to both of those. The rapid emergence of great cultures in the lands of Greece and the competition between them for wealth would bring power-hungry individuals to gather the influence of members of the population and attempt to overthrow the leaders of these cities who were often selected from an elite group of people. These illegal usurpers of power are called tyrants. And although the word tyrant is used to describe a heartless leader in modern times, in historical terms it simply refers to someone who was not elected but who was either imposed upon or imposed himself upon the city-state. Some tyrants actually even improved things for the city-state in question. Greek culture wouldn't just be found on the Balkan Peninsula, but it would also be found in and around the lands of the Aegean Sea, so also the west coastal lands of Anatolia, which is the modern country of Turkey. The wealth of Greek culture was facilitated by virile trade activity, and we can see the minting of coins in use in both Greek societies and neighbouring kingdoms such as Lydia, which dominated the Anatolian landmass. Another indication of the rapid evolution of Greek culture can be detected within its written scriptures, which we can fortunately 
decipher. The Greek poet called Sappho was born on the island of Lesbos during the 7th century BCE and his poetry was written in the form of lyrics, which, like the word tyrant, has subtly changed its specific meaning. Today we describe lyrics as the words to a song, often particularly a rock or pop song. In the classical Greek age, lyrics were the words of poetry that were specifically written to be recited alongside a performance on the lyre, which was a stringed musical instrument common in classical Greece. So the word lyric is taken directly from the name of the lyre. Lesbos is very close to the Anatolian coast, so this demonstrates that the centre of classical Greek culture is much better described as centred on the Aegean Sea rather than centred on the southern Balkan Peninsula. One of the most notable of all the major Greek cities was Athens, which rose to considerable status going into the 6th century BCE. This was thanks to a new constitution which was innovative but also necessary to placate a growing population who were not intimidated by the ruling class and it was not unusual for people power to instigate social reform in some societies, especially in Rome during its own history. The reforms were constructed by a man called Solon who himself did not seem to have ambitions of being a great leader, but seemed much more content to be a loyal Athenian. This was a great demonstration of patriotism in ancient times. 600 BCE Greek patriotism would be tested hugely over the coming centuries as the city-states would become larger and more powerful to the point where they would begin to test each other. Add to this the fact that things were developing on a wider international scale that would eventually affect Greek lands directly and the Greek cultural identity building would start to find a relevant place in the direction of world history. We learned that the greatest empire of this period was the Assyrian Empire, but the Assyrians would pay the price for rapid overexpansion, which often results in fragmentation when the many cultures within an empire rise up and bid for independence again. Too fresh in the memory of these cultures are the true identities of these peoples, and Assyria could be blamed for creating their own downfall when they helped to rebuild the conquered city of Babylon, giving their traditional enemies, the Babylonians, a foothold for a future uprising. Even the Assyrian strategy of deporting Jews out of Israel did not remove the cultural identity from Israel, which still maintained its Jewishness. To the north and the east of the Assyrian Empire were the steppe land Scythians, and the Indo-European language-speaking Medes, who were ancestral to modern Iranians. Both the Scythians and the Medes were interested in exploiting the lands of others for their own wealth, and the Assyrians were very much on the list, as they were the threatening superpower to them both. 
The Babylonians would also rise up to take back their lands from the Assyrians, and it seems that all of Assyria's enemies believed that the ultimate elimination of the Assyrian Empire was the answer to their problems, so none of them were content to stop at regaining their own lost lands. The Assyrians were pinned back into their heartlands and the cities of Nineveh and Nimrud by the Medes and the Babylonians and all of the expanse of the Assyrian lands which made up their vast empire were now lost. By the end of the 7th century BCE, the Assyrians were no more, with both the Medes and the Babylonians now in control of the vast lands that were once Assyrian. The Babylonians were in control of the lands to the south, and if the residents of Jerusalem had thought to celebrate the downfall of their Assyrian conquerors and the empire that deported great numbers of their population, then worse was to come when the Babylonians turned their attention towards them. The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II would also recognise the cultural bonds that made Jerusalem dangerous and banished the Jewish population to Babylon in an act that resonates to unite Abrahamic religious populations in their eternal struggle against their religious enemies. This event is now an iconic event which represents a greater struggle and many would not even know the backstory due to its comparative insignificance compared to its iconic place in today's human consciousness. Within a couple of generations, it would be the Babylonian Empire who would become the victims of aggression when a new power emerged from the lands in and around the historic territory of Elam, which at this time was within the Empire of the Medes. These people were the original Persians, also of Iranian stock, and they would rise to take control of the Median Empire. Their leader was the king Cyrus II. After Cyrus took control of the Median Empire, therefore creating the first Persian Empire, he would take control of the lands of the Lydians in Anatolia before turning his attention south towards the Babylonians. Defeat of the Babylonians would mean freedom from exile for the Jews in Babylon, something that was predicted in a book written by the prophet Isaiah from the previous century that is contained in the Old Testament of the Bible. Some Jews chose to stay in their home in Babylon, but others returned to their spiritual home in Jerusalem, where they found a group of peoples called the Samaritans had made Jerusalem their own home during the Jewish absence. Although Cyrus of Persia is celebrated within Abrahamic literature as a liberator of God's people, Cyrus himself was not of Abrahamic principles, as the Persian religion of this age was Zoroastrianism, and Zoroastrianism itself could be linked ancestrally to the origins of the Vedic scriptures and beliefs which emerged in Indian lands, due to the fact that ancient Iranians and Indians are ancestrally linked through their own branch of Indo-European peoples called the Indo-Iranians.
the Indo-Iranians, also referred to as the Aryans, may have started migrating from the Eurasian steppe around three to 4,000 years ago, with the Iranian branch establishing the Median and Persian empires, and the Indic branch establishing new culture in the Indian subcontinent, even as far as the modern island of Sri Lanka, where they would become the Sinhalese people. This was a period of the recognition of great thinkers and new philosophies all over the known world though. In the Far East we can see the emergence of philosophies such as Taoism and Confucianism with the lifetimes of their respective forefathers Lao Tzu and Confucius during the 6th century BCE. Incidentally, this is also a time where the Japanese also suggest that their own first emperor was alive. In the Indian subcontinent, Mahavira instigated the birth of Jainism and Prince Siddhartha would attain full enlightenment to become the first preacher of Buddhism. Buddhism would always remain a minority religion in the Indian subcontinent though due to the prominence of another Vedic religion called Brahmanism which would develop to become modern Hinduism. It is from Brahmanism that we can see the emergence of the Indian caste system which provides everybody with a social status which they are born into. 500 BCE Greece was also no exception to philosophical development during this time period and we can see a shift in thinking that may have kept Greece at the forefront of academia during the later years of the first millennium BCE. This method of thinking was called rationalism and sought to ignore mythologizing and spirituality in favour of practicality and pragmatism. By developing ideas that relied purely on observation and science, the Greek polymaths and academics would open their minds to a wider range of ideas and possibilities that would lead to the celebration of many great scholars over the course of the next few centuries. The icon of this change in thinking was a man called Thales of Miletus who has been dubbed the father of science by some. His intelligence was put to good use when predicting the height of the pyramids and the occurrence of eclipses by using mathematics. But he is most well known for his rational thinking which influenced a great many academics. The 6th century is also suggested to be the birth of the Greek philosopher called Pythagoras who is known in the modern world for the Pythagoras theorem for calculating the length of a hypotenuse of a right angled triangle. In reality I believe that Thales would have surely known this equation before Pythagoras and that Pythagoras's contribution to history relates much more to philosophy than mathematics. Pythagoras even had a theory of ascetic living that was not completely unlike the philosophy of the Buddha in the Indian subcontinent. He would also believe that the soul was reincarnated which is yet another similarity 
to the philosophies of the Buddha. Pythagoras' philosophies would migrate with Greek naval explorers who colonised foreign lands such as those of the southern tip of the Italian peninsula, which has been referred to as Magna Graecia as a consequence. And Magna Graecia was known to contain Pythagorean communities. The overseas expansion of some of the Greek city-states was reflective of the scramble for wealth to sustain the competition over each other. And there would also be half an eye on the growing power of the Persians, who under King Cyrus had conquered Lydia, bringing his Achaemenid Persian Empire to the border of the Greek cultural lands of western Anatolia. Athens underwent major constitutional reforms under the guidance of Clisthenes, which some have cited as the first form of Western democracy. Achaemenid Persian expansion was very aggressive, with the annexation of the fruitful lands of the Nile River in Egypt and an eastward expansion to the Indus Valley, which created a vast and powerful empire, larger than the world had ever seen. King Darius I would put great effort into the infrastructure of this vast empire with a project of road building to hasten trade and travel times and a canal that would connect the Nile River to the Red Sea and therefore offer the first efficient sea route from the Mediterranean to the Indus Delta facilitating the wealth of the Achaemenids. The Achaemenid trade links transmitted goods such as rice, peaches and apricots to the western lands of their empire. The attempted monopolisation of sea trade was a definite problem for the Greek city-states who were generally opposed to one another but could all suffer together if the Achaemenids were allowed to take over. The Achaemenids initially interfered in Greek affairs by attempting to annex the Greek-speaking city-states of Western Anatolia by installing their own tyrant rulers, who would be subservient to the central Achaemenid imperial court. These Ionian city-states revolted in the early 5th century BCE, and although the Achaemenids put down the revolt, the Athenians knew that conflict with the Achaemenids would be inevitable. It would not be long before the Achaemenids would head towards the Balkan Peninsula, crossing the Aegean Sea by water and the Hellespont by land, signifying an iconic invasion of Europe by an Asiatic society that would symbolise the cultural split between Europe and Asia that is still very recognisable in today's world. When Darius I of Achaemenid Persia attempted to attack Athens, the Athenians would prevent them from landing on the Balkan Peninsula at the Battle of Marathon, and it would take another 10 years before a larger Achaemenid military force would return under the leadership of Darius I's son, Xerxes. This time, a greater confederacy of Greek city-states would support the Athenians, including the very able and brave Spartans, who were a traditional Greek enemy of the Athenians. Athens was almost completely lost to the Achaemenids, but for the genius of a man called Themistocles, 
an Athenian statesman who created a wooden wall of Greek ships that caused chaos to the Achaemenid fleet and allowed the Greeks to either slaughter the Achaemenids or watch them flee for safety. The Athenians had repelled the Achaemenids. Once the Achaemenids had gone, the Athenians went to great lengths to create a permanent confederacy of Greek-speaking polis or city-states called the Confederacy of Delos, which essentially was an Athenian attempt to become an empire. This was something that the Spartans would fiercely oppose despite supporting the Athenians against the Achaemenids. The Spartans believed that they should be accountable to no one and feared Athenian expansion and this would create a renewed growing tension between Sparta and Athens, especially as Athens was slowly becoming the most powerful of all of the Greek city-states. Elsewhere in the world and to the north of Magna Graecia, the small city-state of Rome was slowly beginning to create its own area of influence which would keep the neighbouring Etruscans out and subjugate neighbouring Latin populations. The iconic event was the expulsion of the Roman king Tarquin the Proud at the end of the 6th century BCE who had Etruscan links. The city of Rome would then be ruled in much more of an oligarchic fashion, not too dissimilar to the nature of the Greek city-states. This would be the start of what is historically referred to as the Roman Republic. In the Far East, the culture of China would begin to spread out, despite the fact that the central state did not maintain a great deal of control over the many different states that made up the lands under the influence of the Zhou dynasty. There would be constant competition between the states not unlike that being experienced in Greece between the city-states there. Despite this competition, cultural advancement was enhanced rather than suppressed. Rice farming would migrate to Japan from China which is not unlike the cultural movement of pottery during the Paleolithic that is suspected to have migrated from China to Japan also. Confucian teachings have managed to touch a greater amount of people within Chinese societies, successfully spreading within the populations of different Chinese states. It is possible that ironmongery made its way into the cultures of Vietnam in Southeast Asia from China too. Claims that Chinese silks were found in Athens that date to this period, I'm not sure about whether to take this seriously because some discoveries of silk have actually turned out to be different fibres after further careful examination. We have not mentioned the Americas yet either and this is because America's history is very independent from the rest of the world due to its isolation. The Paracas culture had emerged in the southern lands of the modern country of Peru during this period on the southern fringes of the lands influenced by the Chavin culture. This was in South America and distant from other emerging cultures of Mesoamerica, which are the lands of the south of the modern country of Mexico. 
we see a culture called the Zapotecs emerging with their own brand of hieroglyphic writing and centred at the influential capital city of Monte Alban. The history of the cultures of the Americas is extremely scant from this period and considerably scant when we can identify so many individuals and the stories of their individual lives in the Mediterranean area and the Far East. We've run out of time. We've run out of time this week and... uh, we're probably only about a quarter of the way through the summary, so so we could be going for another three episodes yet. I did I did think I could cram it into fewer episodes, but I'm not sure that I can. If I want to do it nice and properly, I think we're going to be uh, summarising for the next three episodes. So we'll we'll end up with a total of seventy nine episodes, which is quite incredible in itself. But uh, if you're enjoying the History of the World podcast and you'd like to support the History of the World podcast, then simply go to our Patreon page, which you can find by visiting the very good historyoftheworldpodcast.com website that's got lots of stuff on there, such as uh, social media and bibliography and, and links to other things that can complement some of the, 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 uh, the content of the podcast episodes. And uh, obviously there you have the Patreon link. If you click on the Patreon link, you can sign up to make a monthly contribution to the podcast, which really, really, truly does help the podcast to uh, continue going and to flourish as well. So we'd really like uh, to see you help us out. And um, if you do help out, um, you become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and I have some new members to uh, welcome this week we've got uh, Janice Truting, Keith Rowe, Aaron Hurties and Pre Carpenter all now new members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati thank you very much and I'm sorry if I pronounced any of your names incorrectly uh, but uh, you're all most welcome to the History of the World podcast Illuminati and if you go along to the Patreon page you can see that you can qualify for rewards as well so it's uh, it's definitely worth considering and uh, you'll be supporting the podcast while you're at it. Now this week um, I have been buying books but uh, I bought some books uh, a very unusual place, I mentioned it last week, the Chalk Valley History Festival which is actually still going on, but I've I've come home to record this wonderful episode for for you guys. So um, so I peeled off early and came home, uh, but uh, I did really enjoy it, uh, my time down there, and I got to meet lots of wonderful people and listen to lots of fantastic lectures and uh, and it's highly recommended. There's a lot of practical demonstrations down there and. Uh, very very uh well worth a visit and and most time periods are, are covered there and uh you know i really do recommend it if you live in the uk um and uh, you can travel to the salisbury plains um, and then please do consider going to the chalk valley history festival it's uh it's it's a wonderful event and uh 
you know, you can help to keep it going and, and we'll all have a, a wonderful place where we can converge and, and talk all things history. So uh, highly recommended and uh, th- well, thank you very much to everyone who was down there. I'll, I'll start posting some links on my social media pages to the uh, to the uh, experts that, that were down there and their, and their own uh, personal businesses. Um, so I'll start doing that over the course of the next few days, I think. I got sent a message uh, from uh, Alvin Santiago. What a, what a great name. Uh, and uh, he's put, I have just discovered your podcast on Spotify and I'm currently still in the early stage of it, volume one. I must say that it has been very entertaining and educational. I really appreciate the hard work that you've put into this. Thank you. Well, thank you for taking the time to write to me, Alvin. It's, uh, it's very kind when everyone um, writes in and just lets, lets me know you're out there, you know. like it's, it's nice to hear from you guys, so I really do appreciate your messages and I'm only too happy to read them out couple of uh, new reviews for the podcast. Uh, Francois Bernier from uh, Canada has put uh, Chris's podcast on the history of the world is brilliant, well-researched, accessible and stunningly engaging. I'm devouring the seasons and find myself reflecting back with new appreciation on many of the places I've travelled to, but more so on our incredible history. I'm hooked. And uh, KD Madigan 2000 from the USA has put fantastic podcasts. For anyone who's interested in history, this podcast is one of the best. Neutral in presentation with level of detail that allows listeners to further investigate areas of interest. Keep up the great work, Kelly Madigan. Uh, well, thank you both of you for, for those fantastic reviews and, uh, and I hope you get to hear uh, hear them read out at the at the end of this podcast. I hope you've um, I hope you make it to this point. We're almost at the end of volume three. We've only got um, you know a few episodes left to go. We're summarising, and then that will be it. And then I'll be scratching my head, wondering what to do for a few weeks while I prepare for volume four. Um, it was, of course, the History of the World podcast's third birthday. Um, this week just gone and um, I'd like to thank every one of you who has been with me throughout this journey and who supported the podcast by continuing uh, continuing to listening oh, goodness me oh, I'm tripping over my tongue I'm sorry for everyone who continues to listen to it um, and um, it really does help to promote the podcast up the charts and um all of your listens, your downloads, we're, we're sort of, you know, well over one and three quarter million downloads now, uh, all time. Um, so thank you so much for all of your support. And um, I can't believe here we are three years in and uh, still throwing out weekly episodes. Uh, I, I, I never thought I could do that. So, uh, but I do believe it is down to your support and your kind words that have helped to keep me motivated so thank you everyone next week we'll be continuing the story of the classical age uh, getting ever nearer to medieval times and uh, until next week when we link up again and we do it all over again promise me that you'll be good 
Come to the History of the World podcast.com and join all the other hot worlders on our wide range of social media. Why not support the podcast by clicking the Patreon link or buying me a book and becoming a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati? Drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast.mail.com and let me know what you thought of this week's episode. See you next time.